Acts chapter 20, and then we're going to go into 1 Timothy. So, as you look at your New Testament, you know that most of the letters that were written by Paul were written often to churches or particularly with Timothy or Titus, uh, to men who co-labored with him. And so there's often the backstory in Acts. And so tonight we're really going to be doing an introduction to Timothy's letter. You might know that Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, so he is raised up knowing God's word. He's a, Paul's young protege, his son in the faith. This is one of Paul's last letters written. Uh, we don't actually know the precise uh, chronology. It's a little bit hard to cobble together. Um, but writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that pastor had, uh, Paul had pastored for three years, you'd expect that church to be robust, to be theologically sound, and to be solid in its organization. And so I think Acts 20 actually gives us a little bit of a hint that the apostle had a better insight into the church of Ephesus uh, than, than we might just assume um, from, from knowing that Paul had been there. As you get to the latter portion of that, that chapter in um, in Acts chapter 20 with me. I want you to come down to verse 20. I did not shirk from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. So Paul is saying, I ministered faithfully. Behold, verse 22, I'm going to Jerusalem. And so he's leaving them and he's challenging them, therefore, to, to, to be careful and to uh, watch over the flock. Look down in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd for the shepherd, shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come up from where? Now, who's he talking to? No, he's not talking to the church. Back up. He's talking to the elders. Okay, so he's got this you know, pastor's meeting, it's actually not in Ephesus, they're meeting him in this port city so he could continue on his journey, he gathers the elders together, he's talking to them, he says, hey, be careful, because there's going to be wolves that rise up from among your own midst. Now, that would be a little bit sobering, it's almost like Jesus at the Last Supper. Like, hey, one of you is going to betray me. <laughs> you can imagine these shepherds taking that soberly and realizing that even within the leadership of the church, even among the communicators, the shepherds, the instructors of the church, uh, that doctrinal error will, will infect them. And notice verse 29, they're going to be fierce wolves. And, and they're going to arise and speak twisted things and draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. You have got to read that and think, the Apostle Paul had some indication that the church in Ephesus had some cracks underneath the surface. Like, there is something in the foundation of that church for which he was very pastorally concerned. And so as we get to the letter to Timothy, I think that's a helpful foundation to recognize that the Apostle Paul was concerned, even when he was ministering to them in person, that they were not understanding um, and holding to the doctrine of Christ, the gospel message itself. And so as we look at 1 Timothy, let's just start with a word of prayer and ask God's grace that we would learn well the lessons of Scripture. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that leads and guides us into all truth. We ask that like the Apostle Paul, the leaders of this church, its teachers and servants, would be able to say with all honesty that we have not shrunk back from declaring the whole counsel of God, but with faithfulness, we declare those things that are pleasant to the ear, 
and those things that also terrify the heart, that we might lead men to walk in the fear of the Lord and to love him with all of their heart, soul, and mind. Lord, give pastors and shepherds and deacons and ministers to this church that would carefully shepherd and guard the flock from doctrinal error. I ask that you'd raise up within our church a solid, robust love and affection for the gospel and more deeply a love for their Savior. Lord, guard our church. We know that its only hope is the guardianship of the Holy Spirit who stands watch over her and keeps us in the faith and guards us from temptation too great to bear. And so we plead for mercy. We ask for understanding from your word tonight that it might encourage our hearts and strengthen our commitment and faith in you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right, turn with me to 1 Timothy real quickly. Let's just spend a few minutes in Scripture reminding ourselves of what God so often calls us to do. Okay, so as, as we look in this letter to Timothy, remember, he's writing to a person. So unusually, right, we, we often have Paul writing churches, and unusually here, he's writing to a man. And you almost have to recognize that Timothy, you have to recognize that he's almost an, an apostolic messenger, right? He's not functionally really the shepherd of the church. He's more of, of a a lieutenant of the apostle. In other words, his function is almost in the apostolic heritage as opposed to the pastoral line. And so that's why you, you have this kind of strong authority to guard the shepherds, to, to, to call the church to right deaconhood, and to, to make sure he sets in order the church. That's the type of power most shepherds, with a plurality of shepherds, don't have, kind of that dictatorial power that he comes with. And so you might ask the question, Why? What is going on in this church for which Timothy is so desperately needed? So I'm going to take you on a, a quick run through. There, there is a pervasive sense in which Paul is concerned that Timothy counter and challenge and eradicate false doctrine. It's a major concern of this letter. So look with me in verses 3 and 4. I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Okay, so he's challenged Timothy. Tim, get after it. There are people who need to get away from myths, genealogies, and speculations. Now, this is more than just someone who's really into... Um, their favorite TV show, which is clearly just a myth. I mean, right, TV shows are generally just fiction. The point is, is they've incorporated their mythology into the genealogies, and they're making up and fabricating um, interactions in the Old Testament that seem to have never happened. And there seems to be a lot of fantasy blended with Scripture interpretation. But if you continue on, look at verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, that is, these, fa these Christian virtues, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Just a side note, confidence does not equal knowledge. And they think they have knowledge, they want to be teachers, and they're ignorant. They, they, they don't know what they're talking about, but they really want to teach people what they don't know. And so the church is, the church is endangered. By teachers who don't know the text of Scripture, don't understand the doctrine of God. And if you continue down, he warns them about uh, the purpose of the law being against all this evil sin. He lists it. Now come down with me to verse 10. 
the list is continuing on, so we're continuing forward. He says, sexual immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. Now, notice he just went from practice, homosexuality, um, kidnapping to enslave people. Those types of sins, which I don't think of those as like doctrinal issues. And yet he says that these things are contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So he said that like this garbage that's happening in the church is actually an upshot of doctrinal problems and ignorant teachers who have no business instructing anyone. Because it's leading to a corrupted behavior, which is actually denying the doctrine of the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Maybe I just suggest to you, at least one of the major problems in the church is they have bad doctrine that produces bad behavior. So, so I would just, as a general rule of life, this is true. Behavior is a result of belief. Behavior is a result of belief. And so when you see bad behavior, it's often easy to go after the behavior. And the Apostle Paul is suggesting that we do need to go after the behavior. That's why he lists those virtues in like verses 5 and 6. And that's why he has that sin list in verses 8, 9, and 10. But he says ultimately the behavior is because you have teachers that don't understand the doctrine of the gospel of the blessed God that we serve. Okay, continue on. Look down with me in chapter 4. The Spirit expressly says, in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, if you're taking in your minds, this is a helpful, helpful linkage here. Remember, he just said they're teaching about the law and they don't know what they're talking about. And now you come to this text and you realize that they're regulating people's lives with abstinence and forbidding marriage. You know, so sometimes there's this idea that perhaps um, not doing a whole bunch of bad things will lead to holiness. And I think we see here that holiness can never be reduced to a checklist of behaviors. And even in the Old Testament, one of the concerns that, that certainly arises within the Pharisaical branch is that their behavior is correct in many ways, but it's insincere. It's heartless. And that's why Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's not at all saying you need to be more regulated. He's saying they're incredibly regulated, but their righteousness falls short because God desires the whole man, not just the behavior. He desires the beliefs, the heart, the affections, the soul of the man. Not just the doing, but the whole person has affections and beliefs. That being the case, when you have insincere liars, you have two problems then. They're saying things that they know are not true. And so it requires a discerning leader to filter them out. Because they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, I didn't mean that. Or, no, 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 I didn't say that. No, of course I believe the gospel. Well, in fact, their doctrine, their instruction is gutting the gospel of the glorious representation of a God of grace. Continue on. Look down in chapter 6, verses 2 through 6 with me. And I, I think we'll actually start in 
verse 3. Well, if I'm following the ESV, the end of verse 2. It says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, division, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. That, that end is fantastic because he's saying these false teachers are leveraging the church for their own personal gain. And so they see the parading of their godliness as a means to get something in this life, not realizing that godliness is its own sweet reward. And those who are content with godliness have, in fact, the greatest of gains. They have the Lord Jesus Christ as their precious treasure. And, and they're missing it. Uh, they, they think that they come into a room like this and they see a whole bunch of bank accounts represented by all these people. Or perhaps a whole bunch of people to stroke their ego and to give them uh, settings of pride and listeners. Paul says that's, that's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are false teachers. Those are men of seared consciences. To this church, Timothy is called. Now, if you're a young man in ministry and the Lord calls you to a church, I cannot imagine that you'd want this type of church. Where on the surface, things look well, but among its elder team, false teachers exist. Men who say the right things, but their hearts are moved toward greed. Men who confess doctrinal orthodoxy in public, but in private, in their small groups, they're manipulating people for their own purposes. Welcome to ministry, Timothy. Right? So what's the solution? Again, we're just doing overview of Timothy before we dive in, and then I'll look at just briefly in, in verses uh, 1 and 2. I would suggest to you that, that the theme, the response of Paul is to go at the reverse angle. And that is if bad, bad belief produces bad behavior, you, you don't just ask for good behavior. You start with good belief so that you can lead to good behavior. So as you think through the, like the, the framework of Timothy, Timothy is where you get the qualifications for pastors and deacons. This is where he talks about the care for widows. He is going after even the structure of church. This is where he says, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless there be two or three witnesses. You can only imagine that in a church filled with liars and perjurers and people that are all, filled with all sorts of sin, that tearing down other leaders to make room for them would be very common or very likely. And so there has to be protection. At the same time, if the charge is proven, you rebuke that elder in front of the whole assembly so that others are warned not to follow his pattern of behavior. And so Timothy gives tons of structure. The letter of Timothy gives tons of structure to how the church is to be run. But thematically, go back to chapter 1 with me. We'll, we'll make another run through this, and you'll see this, this theme rise up. Look, at, look, with, me with, look with me at verses 3 through 5 again. He's urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus to charge persons not to teach different doctrine. Okay, so he goes right after and says, tell them to stop. Charge them not to teach that word for different doctrine in Greek is heterodox, right? It, it's that hetero and the word for teaching. Um, 
Instead, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Notice that those are internal virtues. Verses 10 and 11. This stuff is contrary to sound doctrine, and so it's corrected with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I want you to kind of think about that entrusting because we'll come back to it in a few minutes. Down in verse 18. I charge and entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding, now he's speaking about personal faith. So, you know, faith can mean either your belief or it can mean your doctrine. Those are two different things. So we'd say the faith, it speaks to, to the set of truths you believe. But believing them is personal. Does that make sense? So I trust, and my trust is framed by what I trust in. So sometimes you have a hard time in the New Testament understanding what, which one he's going for. Here he's talking about personal trust. So he says, hold your trust with a good conscience. And by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I'll try to bring these together in just a moment here, but let me keep reading through these texts. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, so he's looking at the church as that thing that the pillar, the, the column that holds up, or the buttress is the supporting element in architecture. It holds up and supports the truth. This is one of the reasons, I think, in this letter you see that Paul doesn't see the answer as merely personal. So maybe like just an aside, have you ever heard someone say something like, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like organized religion. So here's the apostle saying, you know, the problem for bad behavior and bad doctrine and people who are corrupting the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is organized, capital O, church. Because this is where the truth is defended. This is where God has set his leaders and teachers to be at battle to fight the good fight against false doctrine. The last thing we need is chaotic, disorganized religion in which any liar who's looking for gain can grab a foothold or a microphone. Continuing on. Chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save, catch this, you'll save whom? Both yourself and your hearers. So here's this call. This church is infected with false teachers, 
with doctrine that's going to corrupt their behavior, the Apostle Paul, in concern, sends a letter to his lieutenant, Timothy, and says, hey, man, we have got to get after this and fix this before these cracks crumble the whole assembly. And in so doing, he says, Timothy, pay attention to yourself and your doctrine. Pay attention to your teaching, your communication of that doctrine, and your pattern of life, because when you do this well, you not only walk faithfully in Christ and don't abandon the faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander, you also secure the people who hear. Because the proclamation of sound doctrine by men who are living by that sound doctrine is a testimony that God has established as a means by which he secures his people. God guards our faith by means. In other words, he could use his supernatural power to keep us safe, and he does. But he also uses moms and dads praying for their kids. He uses a sister in Christ calling another sister on the phone and saying, Hey, I missed you in church this morning. How are you doing? been praying for you. You want to grab coffee later in the week? He uses your personal quiet time as you read the scripture and meditate on it and consider his word. God uses instruments to strengthen you. And one of the primary instruments that seems so defamed in our culture is the church. And, and I know this means so, like, you get it, and so maybe it doesn't need to be repeated. The church isn't a thing, it's people. And so when someone walks away criticizing a church, I mean, Crossway is the name, the brand maybe, under which the assembly gathers, but if someone goes away trashing Crossway, it's easy to like picture a building in our American culture, but that's, that's us. You've got to be honest, we probably deserve it. I mean, we are a ragtag bunch of people, sinners saved by grace. We have nothing to offer the world except Jesus, and he's all they need. But sometimes when we don't live like him and look like him and talk like him, we actually deserve the criticism. But can I just again commend to you that criticizing the bride of Jesus Christ is no way to make yourself a friend of the groom. Paul here, concerned for the church, 1 Timothy 6, verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved, teach and urge these things. And just this constant commission to Timothy to address the false doctrine on two fronts. But the major front is to preach good doctrine. To constantly preach good doctrine. Actually, I would suggest to you Godly belief produces godliness, but there's a theme in this letter that godly leaders must live by the gospel and must preach the gospel. And that was actually the means by which, and of course, Paul is writing to a leader, so that it makes sense that he would address to leaders the need for them to be godly and to walk in good doctrine. But the cure for the church is to have articulated on a regular basis the gospel and the doctrine that saves and expounds Jesus Christ. That's the cure the church needs. And, and Timothy, as the proclaimer, the leader, the, the messenger sent by Paul, the one entrusted with this message, must be the first one to walk in the pattern of the gospel. And let me take you to verses 1 and 2 as we're just kind of preaching introduction stuff here. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by, notice this unusual word. I told you to pay attention. By what? By command of God our Savior. Two two kind of unusual notes there. God is not usually referred to as a Savior. Jesus Christ is. But I think more importantly for Paul's sake, he is defending his apostolic authority to correct and corral these false teachers. And so he says, listen, this is a divine commission I have. I've been commanded by God. And so later when he says, this is the message we've been entrusted, he's suggesting he has no right to tamper or to mess with it but to leave it intact as it's been delivered to him by God who commanded him to deliver it to the people. And so then he tells Timothy in this precious message that I've delivered without tampering or tailoring to my own benefit, I'm delivering to you. Don't you dare mess with it and don't you let the false teachers mess with it either. This is a sacred trust that we have been commanded to carry. Again, just admission to the church family. Articulating doctrine in simple ways for our children is the essence of Christian ministry in our kids' programs. And I, I am always startled by how poorly we are able to communicate the gospel when asked simple questions. Uh, I think our church, and it's just a sweet, it's a sweet um, joy of our church family, I think, to hear testimonies and to hear people express faith But if I said, hey, next week, you're on, some of you guys would be in a full-on panic because articulating the gospel in a way that's clear and communicates to others that you have seen and tasted of the goodness of our Savior is something that is really hard for you to clarify with any doctrinal conviction. I mean, again, we we don't get hardly any of these types of testimonies, but if it's like, you know, when I was nine, I asked Jesus in my heart, so I know I'm going to heaven. As a pastor, when I see that come across my desk, I'm like, oh boy. We want to be a church that's able to articulate what God has done through Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sin. And that actually is antidote to false doctrine. And the more and the clearer we are able to proclaim and, and clarify and challenge and exhort on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't mean the gospel in its like narrowest elements. I mean the gospel and its implications. You know, kind of like a tree. We've got the trunk of the gospel, but its roots reach far into our lives in various ways. The more we understand that and the more its roots kind of penetrate all the areas of our life, Uh, the more faithful our church will be and safe and secured from false doctrine. As you continue on in verse 1, it's it's the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. It says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I would just suggest to you that although it's common greeting, it's such a refreshing reminder that grace, that hope, that mercy, that peace do not arise from us, but are granted to us by our God. Right? Hope that comes from Jesus Christ our Lord. Mercy and grace and peace, those also come from Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. So just two simple reminders at the outset, I think, for Timothy to hear, and that we need to grab a hold of. 
we have the scriptures delivered to us by God's choice servants who guardianed and protected the delivery of the gospel so that it would come to us and be delivered to us without any alteration or edits. So that, just like in Paul's day, this scripture is your one source of correction and restoration when you have failed. Like, how do you know how to get right with God? Scripture tells you. How do you know how to recover from an enslaving addiction? Scripture actually deals with this. How do you know how to battle through uh, conflict within your marriage? Scripture deals with this. How do you know how to talk to a sinner and point them to Christ? Sinner again. It's just gonna, scripture again deals with this so that we know how to talk to this sinner. Right? Like, this is what the Bible does. You'll notice grace and mercy and peace from God are in direct contradiction, or maybe I'd say in, in direct distinction from the way these false teachers are twisting it. They're taking the law, and they're twisting the law, and they're using it as, as, as contrary to the gospel of our blessed God. Right? Like, the gospel of the glory of our blessed God is being contradicted in the way they're teaching the law. Well, listen, when you get the law right, it's in no way a contradiction to the gospel. It is in no way a contradiction. At no point ever did God establish the law as a means by which men could be righteous or justified before him. The law was never intended that way. The Pharisees have twisted it that way. And here this church is not only twisting it this way, there are some corruptions with it that are beyond that. They have myths and genealogies. They fabricated Old Testament type of teaching into some amalgamation of sci-fi meets Jesus. And, and the apostle's like, what is going on? Preach the gospel, Timothy. Get rid of this garbage in your church. And remember that grace and peace and hope, mercy are not because you do well. They're from Christ alone. And for me, that's a significant point of the gospel, isn't it? Like he's already building a foundation. I have been commanded and entrusted and as a steward of the gospel of Christ, I do this. I declare the gospel without alteration so it can be, in, it can be trusted as God's very word. And that gospel message declares grace and peace and hope find their source and are given to man without our merit ever. This is the essence of the church's message, that we take God's word and we preach it. We don't change it. We don't tamper with it. And the hope then is that the church would raise up leaders, laymen, women, deacons, and pastors who walk in godliness and declare the gospel faithfully. This is how God has built his church to have an immune system that is strong against the infection of this world. So, just admonition for you all this evening. Meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read the scripture and submit to it. On almost every counseling meeting I have when I begin with someone, I have put into my repertoire of tools this initial question. Will you promise to do whatever the Bible says? You'll be amazed at how many times people are like, yes. Two meetings later, 
So you know a meeting I had two times ago where I started with this question, will you obey the Bible no matter what it says? And it's like, well, yeah, I remember that. Okay, so right now, when the Bible says that you need to forgive the person that's sitting in the chair next to you, and you're saying, but pastor, you don't know what they've done. You've just said, I will disobey God's word because of how injured I feel. So I'm going to ask you again. Are you willing to obey the Bible no matter what? Boy, that's a hard moment. So here's, it's easy right now. This is like the first meeting of counseling. Like, yeah, I want this mess fixed. I will obey Jesus no matter what. But can I just encourage you to have that resolve every day? When you wake up in the morning, wake up with gratitude and joy in your Savior. Consider his grace and his peace and his mercy and his hope that he gives you just in verses 1 and 2. That's all we are reading right now. Thank him for that. And ask him for the strength to obey him no matter what. So that when you're exhausted at 4 p.m. and you come home and your spouse says, Hey, I'm sorry. I've got this thing I've got to do. Here, do everything. (laughs) That your attitude and responses are righteous. When you get little whispers that someone has said something unkind about you, that you respond with grace and courage, that you approach people who may have sinned against you with grace and mercy and a desire to forgive and grant forgiveness, you're going to obey God always. Just obey the Bible. So wake up with that commitment to, to walk in gratitude for peace and grace and mercy and hope that have been delivered to you and a commitment and resolve to obey the gospel in all of its demands. If you do that, you're starting to get the message of Timothy. So hopefully next week we'll get a little further into the letter.